Welcome to Tech Junior. Hey everybody, got a really great show today. We are talking to Tomash uh, Lakomi. I think I said that right. <laughs> um, anyway, Tomash is a uh, React engineer, um, a, a JavaScript person, a testing guru, and a lover of jQuery. So we talked to him about uh, testing JavaScript, testing React, and just kind of wrapping our minds around front-end testing in general. So uh, you're going to love it. Uh, if you want to support us, go to our website at techjr.dev and subscribe to our newsletter. Then click support to check out our Patreon and maybe buy like a t-shirt or a sticker or something. Uh, you can also tweet us at TechGR Podcast, leave a review on iTunes, tell your friends, and do all the things to help other people hear the show. All right, let's get on with it. Welcome to Tech Junior. My name is Lee Warwick Jr. I'm a full stack JavaScript developer. I have with me, as always, Eddie. Hey, it's Eddie, front end developer. And uh, we have a special guest today. We've got uh, Tomash Lakomi, if I said that right. Yeah, that, that, was, that was quite correct. I mean, honestly, it was close enough. <laughs> Happy to be here, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you, yeah. Could, uh, if you could introduce yourself for everybody. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, so like I said, my name is Tomasz Lakome. I work as a senior front-end developer at Olex Group. I'm based in Poznań, Poland, where I was actually born and raised. So I, I've been traveling a lot, but I've been living here in this, the same city for the last 29 years. I'm, uh, I have a master's in electronics and telecommunications. I didn't study computer science because someone told me that programmers won't be able to get a job in the next couple of years. I, I still think of this person really? <laughs> quite a lot. Yeah, I, I think I was, I don't know, like 15 at the time. And someone told me that, no, you shouldn't study computer science, uh, which, which I didn't uh, actually because I uh, trusted them. Um, so apart from, from working at Olex Group, I also do Egghead videos. So I've been recording Egghead for a year now. And I mm -hmm. have uh, over 70 lessons recorded about React. Uh, I also have a course on React 360. Which, which is cool because you can do React with, uh, with in VR environment. Uh, apart from that, I've been also uh, doing some conferences. Uh, for instance, I've been talking about Cypress recently. Right now, I'm showing that I do have a Cypress t-shirt on right now. Uh, I'm a huge <laughs> fan of Cypress. Yeah. I, I've been added to this like, a secret Cypress group, which is called Cypress Ambassadors. So this is a group of folks who are excited about Cypress, and we are kind of in touch with the, with the Cypress team. And yeah, I'm happy, happy to be here and happy to talk about, about testing because this is one of the things that I really care about. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. So, um, we've had a, a rough time trying to find somebody that could come on and talk about testing react. Um, mm -hmm. you know, obviously like testing itself is kind of hard enough, but then when you bring in the browser and UI development and there's this whole visual aspect to testing that kind of elevates the complexity. And makes yeah, it really, 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 really difficult. So um, I know that there's some really awesome tools that have kind of popped up in the, the past couple of years, uh, Cypress being one of them. But yep. um, before we get into that, like, um, can we talk about like unit testing and maybe integration testing for React? And like, you know, uh, so there's like React testing library, mm -hmm. there's Jest that's popped up. Um, so what kind of tools do you use whenever you test your React apps and what kind of, uh, strategy do you have for, for testing? Yeah, sure. Uh, so like I mentioned, there's React Testing Library and there's Jest and 
Honestly, this is in my toolkit as well, as in those are the most kind of like popular tests, uh, popular test tools right now for a very good reason, to be honest. As in, uh, Jess is an excellent test runner uh, because it's fast. Uh, you, can, you are able to not only run your test very fast, but you can also mock, honestly, whatever you want. You are able to travel through time. So for instance, if you have to wait uh, for something to complete, like you have a timeout in your code, you can advance the time for like 10 seconds and get the test result right uh, right away without having to wait. Uh, and the React test library itself uh, is an excellent testing tool because it's hard to write bad tests using this uh, library. As in, the React testing library was built with the best practices in mind. So uh, it's actually quite literally, it's very complicated to write a bad test because for instance, one of the rules of unit testing is that you shouldn't test the implementation itself you should test how the, for instance, how the component behaves. So from the user's perspective, like if users want to be able to log in, they don't really care about the fact that your, your button state name is disabled or not disabled. What they care about is being able to log in, for instance. So React Testing Library allows you to test things from more of the user's perspective. So uh, the API focuses less on implementation details and more on, uh, for instance, whether you are showing the current the correct content to the users based on this kind of user behavior instead of, uh, I don't know, testing the internal state of the component. One of the, one of the things that I also care about when it comes to unit testing is uh, choosing what to test uh, because unit testing is kind of tricky uh, because you are able to put a number on it. And by number, I mean the test coverage. So when, I mean, test coverage goes from zero to 100 and Sometimes it's kind of, it's, I, I don't know, you may want to try to achieve 100% test coverage, which honestly is not going to work ever. And even if it will work at some point, somehow you will probably have terrible tests uh, because aiming for 100% coverage is not going to give you good meaningful tests. It's just going to tell you, well, you touched every single line of the code, but you still may have you know, bugs in your code base. Yeah, absolutely. So I had read uh, read an article recently talking about tef- test coverage, and the guy said uh, you should aim for 100%, but you shouldn't aim to test 100% of your code. You should aim to have looked at 100% of your code. And yeah. so if you're using some kind of coverage library, whenever you decide, like, okay, I don't care about testing this, use whatever, like, commenting code there is that makes the coverage skip that and basically mm-hmm. not look at it. Um, yeah. And so that way, like, you are testing 100% of it, or you have at least uh, kind of thought about testing 100% of the code base. So there's nothing that hasn't had a set of, eyeball, uh, set of eyeballs on it at some point, yeah. which made a lot of sense uh, when I read that. But um, going back to React Testing Library, so you mentioned uh, implementation details. So yeah. um, React Testing Library will do stuff, as I understand it, like, if you click a button, uh, you can look at like visual elements that the user would see. So mm-hmm. like you can tell uh, the library to click on an element and then expect you know another element to have a text change or something. But what you can't do is say like when I click this element, it should fire this event and it should change this state and all this other stuff that happens underneath uh, you know within your program that really like the user doesn't care about. They they exactly. expect to do something and see a certain output or a certain result. 
which when you think about it is kind of it's a little bit scary because all of your logic kind of lives in those implementation mm-hmm. details. But, you know, if things are happening the way that they're supposed to happen, you kind of don't need to care about that, right? Yeah, definitely. Like every component, like in React, for instance, it has like some props, it has internal state. But when you think about it, at the end of the day, you should be able to completely change the underlying implementation of your component while keeping the same behavior and your tests should still be passing. Like for instance, if you are migrating from class components to hooks with, with keeping the same behavior which you, kept, which, you, which you have currently in mind, like those tests shouldn't start failing just because you decided to adopt a different API. If you change the public API, for instance, I don't know, you change the component behavior so under those props is going to render different texts. Well, then definitely you need to update the test. But here is a conscious decision of you as a, as a tester for you to, t- to change that. And also you touch on the important point is that you should be aware of the things that you are not testing. Uh, because I do completely agree that, uh, like I said, you shouldn't aim for 100% test coverage. And there are some things in your code which you probably won't be testing and that is okay. Uh, for instance, you shouldn't test like very s- simple components which are just rendering the children passed in wrapped in a, some wrapper, like a box element or something like that. Because then you will be just testing whether React works properly. And I do have faith in the React team and I know that they are testing their code, so I don't have to test their code. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I can fo- focus on testing mine. Yeah, there, there's this whole philosophy of like, don't test the implementation details. But at the same time, I'm curious about, like, it's sure that's fine whenever you have a component that's mm. self-contained. But when you start talking about, like, props coming into a component or, like, a component makes an API call or does some kind of side effect or maybe relies on some kind of, like, Redux state to change or something like that, yeah. does Jest and React Testing Library kind of give you the tools to either, like, stub those things or, like, mock them or, or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. In Jest, you can mock basically anything that you want, uh, to be fair. So if you are operating on some external API, if you need to get a, a module, for instance, I was like literally this week uh, writing some unit tests in Jest uh, because in my project, we have uh, those things which are called feature flags. So feature flags basically allows you to deploy the same code on production environment, but based on those flags, whether they are on or off, you can deliver different behavior, different experiences to users. So basically you can do A-B testing and stuff like that. And in unit tests, you should be able to mock this API. So with Jest, you can just, uh, you, you are able to import uh, this function from this API and just say, okay, whenever the test is going to do, call this function, just tell me that this flag is on or off. So with both of, the, both of those tools, the React Testing Library and Jest, I, I do strongly believe that you can test like rather complicated scenarios with uh, mocking with all those tools that you have at your disposal. Uh, also, what's important to highlight about React and Stick Library is that it's going to render uh, not only the component that you're testing, but also all the components that are rendered by this component. So it doesn't do shallow testing. It doesn't only render the component that you're testing, but it's also going to render the whole, the whole tree. Which is, which is important as well, uh, because with shallow testing, you may end up with some shallow tests and you may uh, miss some very important aspects that you probably should be testing. But on, on the other hand, for more 
I would say advanced tests, more user-facing tests, where you know that you have to mock a lot of things. Uh, this is when I turned to, to Cypress, to be fair. Like, instead of having this very heavily complicated unit tests, I switched to Cypress. So for, you mentioned um, rendering the whole tree. Yes. So what does that mean whenever you're working with Jest and React Testing Library? Does that mean, like, it's rendering the entire app, like, in memory? Or... It's no. rendering like other components that that component touches or exactly. how does that work? Yeah, so, so it's basically it's rendering whatever your component is actually rendering on the page. So for instance, you have a, a menu component and menu has, a, has buttons and I know the lab labels and stuff like that. So if, with a shallow rendering approach, you would only render this menu and basically like those uh, JSX uh, elements without actually rendering those children. But with React Testing Library, what you have by default is going to render the whole thing. So not only you will have the menu, but you will also have rendered those buttons, those labels as actual HTML elements. So you will be able to see, for instance, uh, okay, let, let me give you a better example. So if you are rendering those, this, those menu items, users want, they don't care about JSX. They want to have, I don't know, like eight menu items. So with with this approach, the fact that it's going to render the whole thing, you can actually test that, okay, this menu should render eight different buttons with those kind of texts in, uh, inside of them. This button should be disabled by default and those labels should be present. And also uh, there's this aspect of uh, accessibility. So for instance, React Testing Library is able to fetch components by the alt text. So the text which is provided to users who uh, have uh, site problems, for, for instance. Uh, which, is, which is also crucial. So you can actually test whether your uh, site is accessible by also checking out those accessibility parts of your application. So we've talked about unit testing. Um, I think the next easiest thing to talk about is kind of like end-to-end -end tests, mm -hmm. or maybe, you know, the kind of things that you would get into with Cypress. So uh, what is Cypress and, you know, what are end-to-end -end tests and how does Cypress make that easier for you? Sure. So we established before that users don't really care about unit tests, as in they don't care about imp implementation details. They don't care about frameworks. They care about being able to log in, log out, to buy something, sell something, send a tweet, watch a movie on YouTube or Netflix or whatever. This is what they care about. So what end-to-end -end testing allows you to do is to test the app from the user's perspective, as in it's going to actually open up your browser is going to actually click on the buttons as users would, uh, as users are clicking the buttons. It's going to also like write text in inputs and all of all of that, which means that you can test your app from the exact user's perspective. And Cypress is, uh, in my humble opinion, is the currently the best tool to do that uh, for a bunch of reasons. Uh, first up, it's op it operates uh, within a browser, so. You can either run your tests on, on Electron, but also you can run them in actually in Chrome browser, uh, which is excellent to see uh, because with Cypress, you not only get to run your tests, but also you can very easily debug your tests because you have this familiar environment of a browser. So when you are writing unit tests and you have an issue, you have a bug, there's probably going to be sort out some output in your console, which may not be obvious at the first glance what exactly is going on. 
But with Cypress, you can see exactly what's going on. You can see the error messages that are displayed to your users. So you know that, I don't know, login flow is broken because I click on this input, uh, the test has typed in the login, that's typed in the password, click on the button, and something broke. Which for me is absolutely uh, excellent. It's a great approach to testing. I do believe that you sh should aim for combination of both unit tests and end-to-end -end tests because, well, like we said before, users don't care about unit tests. And with end-to-end -end testing, you are able to ensure that their actual user experience works as intended. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what kind of things would you test with Cypress? Uh, so you talked about like login flow um, and, and that sort of thing, but is that or are those tests that you would write for like a staging environment that you'd have? Or do you run them against like your production site? Um, it, yeah. Is there so, any kind of like mock stuff that you would use? So cur currently like in, in my project, uh, for instance, I'm going to use this as a, as a reference because well, this is what I'm doing right now. Uh, we have two different types of Cypress tests. So first up we have a rather extensive suite of tests which are running on every single pull request. And we do have, well, quite a lot of faith in, in Cypress. As in, in Olex group, you are not able to merge anything if the end-to-end -end tests are not passing. Because we trust Cypress, we trust that whenever it's going to tell us that, well, something is broken, it is actually broken. So those are, I don't know, like hundreds of different test cases, which, by the way, are running on seven different machines at once. So those are well, rather fast. But then again, they also take some time, which is an important thing to think about when writing end-to-end -end tests, is that they're by definition a bit slower than unit tests because they actually, have, they actually have to, you know, open up your website and stuff like that. In general, what you want to test with Cypress is uh, the most crucial users flow, user flows. Uh, this is the approach I've been uh, taking when it comes to Cypress, is that in each application, there are things that are absolutely core to its behavior. So for instance, like you said, login flow. Uh, for instance, an example on Twitter, you should be able to tweet. You should be able to see tweet. You should be able to delete tweets. You should be able to edit. Okay, maybe not edit because this doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but those core flows, those things that are absolutely mandatory that they work for, from user's perspective. This is what you should cover with Cypress. Uh, because you can have those things covered by unit tests. And the actual example that I've had two companies ago, we had uh, unit tests, everything was passing, but there was an advertisement over the login button. Which, <laughs> okay. yeah, unit tests are not able to catch, catch that. <laughs> you, also, yeah, you also mentioned staging. And uh, when it comes to staging, when it comes to production, I do believe that it's important to have a suite of uh, like smoke tests. So basically the core idea is that they are going to, for, for instance, this is what we have uh, set up in OLX, is that they go on production every 10 minutes, I believe, and they do some very basic things. But having those tests in place allows us to discover potential issues with our core user flows before users do, because we are running those tests against production environment, and whenever our machine is not able to search for something, there is a pretty high chance that users are not able to do so either. 
Are those uh, unit tests also, or not unit tests, are those Cypress tests, um, are they running against Chrome or is it, uh, so to give you some context, like Mm -hmm. we've been kind of exploring this, this idea where I'm at, um, where we've got a customer base that, you know, is using a, a variety of different browsers, a lot of mobile phones, a lot of like Apple, Safari, that sort of thing. Uh, and including like Internet Explorer, uh, I hate to say it. So yeah. um, we looked at Cypress and we were like, well, we don't know if we can use that because it can't test all those other browsers. Mm-hmm. So it would be awesome to have uh, smoke tests, um, which I had never heard of until you mentioned it. But uh, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to run a couple tests like every once in a while and say, hey, did the site blow up or is it still available yeah. or whatever? But uh, I'm I'm curious if you're concerned at all about the limitations of cross-browser support with Cypress, mm-hmm. or if you handle that a different way? So there are, there are a couple of things here. Uh, first up, uh, cross-browser testing is on Cypress roadmap. Uh, I've been talking to Cypress folks because I also had those, those concerns, and they assured me that uh, Firefox is very close to be, uh, to be supported by Cypress, and also Internet Explorer will be supported by Cypress. At some point, wow. I... Yeah, I'm not part of the team, so I'm not entirely sure when, but it, it is on the roadmap because many clients are well requesting it. And for a very good reason, because like I said, if you have uh, users on the different browsers, well, you're, you want to give a good experience to them. On the other hand, as it stands right now, I think that currently Cypress is not really meant for cross-browser support uh, because there are different tools for, for that, as in you can actually check out your, your site under different browsers. Uh, you can probably uh, automate that uh, or you know, do some uh, actually like manual QA testing. What I think of Cypress right now is that it tests not necessarily the UI, but the ability of users to use the UI. So Cypress is not going to, I don't know, get you an error that, I don't know, this padding is broken on Firefox, or this margin is uh, terrible on IE6. But it's going to tell you that, I don't know, this user validation flow is broken. Like you have this form and your form is allowed you to, I don't know, paste in a non-valid email or stuff like that. This is what you care about when it comes to testing those kind of behaviors. So you are not, be, you are not going to be able to catch everything, really. But you're going to be able to catch those really important and kind of embarrassing at times, you know, bugs that people are not able to log in. This is not something that you want to hear from the users. This is something that you want to tell the users, oh, by the way, we have some issues with our login flow. Our team is currently working on that. The fix will be deployed in five minutes. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, And what keeps coming to mind, you know, the more I think about testing is kind of, this analogy I have with uh, cameras. So a, mm-hmm. a long time ago, my I had a friend tell me he was a big photographer, but uh, he said the best camera is the one that you have with you. And so oh. I kind of feel like the best tests that you can write are the ones that actually get written. So it doesn't really matter like how you do it, but it, as long as you are doing it, like that's the first step and the yeah. most important step. And like you can go off and argue about like browser support and you know test suites and runners and all mm-hmm. that stuff. But if you're not writing any tests, like that's that's the main issue. Yeah. So, but um, it's also important to highlight that you have to trust your tests. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I don't know. It's kind of like we're talking about the functionality of the application, which obviously is important, but then it, mm -hmm. it would also be nice because we're, you know, all web developers, like, can we also ensure that like we're covering these weird disparities between browsers that are still around? So it's kind of a weird gray area to be in. Yeah, absolutely. So like I said, I'm really looking forward to the cross browser support on on Cypress because I'm sure it's it's going to be kind of like a game changer. Because also Cypress it gives you screenshots and video recordings so you can exactly see what's going on. Uh wow. which which for for me frankly was excellent. Uh because in, in some of the in most of the companies I worked for before, we did attempt automated testing. And this is why I wanted to mention that uh, no matter which tests you have, you have to trust them. Uh, because I, I used to work with a suite of automated tests, which was not stable. And we've spent so many hours writing those tests, but the tools themselves were not stable. And it was a terrible situation because we had tests that were failing, but we are not sure whether they are failing because something is actually broken or the tests are failing because it's Thursday and they just feel like it. Right. So, yeah. Like you said, it's important. It's very crucial to have tests, which I would add, uh, you are able to trust. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And kind of on that same note, I was really surprised to hear you say that uh, you can actually merge without running your Cypress tests because end-to-end um, -end tests are like notoriously brittle tests, so they, they break mm -hmm. very easily. And to say like we can't merge without running our suite of end-to-end -end tests is kind of amazing. Like I would think that would stop a lot of teams in their tracks. Uh, it, it seems like a very um, like a very hardcore way of doing it. Um. You, we wouldn't do it if it wasn't stable, as in, because I do I do completely agree with you in other teams in other tools which honestly I'm not going to name because I haven't used them in a while I'm sh I'm sure they have improved, but the thing is that we wouldn't do it before because they were unstable, and I would probably disable this check at some point because I wouldn't want to restart the test like five different times in order to get it to finally freaking pass. But here, uh, those tests are they're pretty much stable. Uh, as in, I'm trying to remember right now, when was the last time I had an issue that I was not able to merge something that was actually occurred by Cypress, as in the Cypress was at fault. And I, I can't really remember. remember it, it most, in vast majority of the cases, it was something is actually broken or the, run, the website has a, had a random hiccup, hiccup. But apart from that, I, I do think, think that Cypress is mat mature enough for you to be able to kind of block merging if the tests themselves are not passing, which it might, may be hardcore for a bit. But I, I do believe, on the other hand, is that if you have tests that are actually you know, trying to log in, I'm going to use this as an example again, and the test is not able to log in, well, you probably don't want to put, you don't want to push it to production because if you do, you are probably going to stay in the office a bit longer. This is highly likely. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. It could, uh, could potentially ruin your weekend, right? Yeah. 
Well, um, that's also this aspect of mental health, right? Because we also write tests for ourselves. It's not only about, I don't know, our users, but it's also about us being able to go home and not having to worry about, you know, stuff breaking in the middle of the night. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, I've recently started writing tests at work uh, for our, we're creating a node service. And mm-hmm. so um, it's not like a super critical thing that we're working on where it's like affecting our, our cash flow for the business. And so because of that, like we're kind of experimenting with some new stuff, including testing. So writing like a bunch of Mocha and uh, Chai tests, um, using like super tests and sign on JS and stuff. And doing mm-hmm. like the whole workflow of like, okay, I have a controller and I'm going to stub this and spy on this. And it's at first was kind of tough, but at the same time, it's really nice to be able to run your test suite and go like, okay, I changed something and nothing broke, you yeah. know, or, you know, I, I ran the test and everything's green. And I said, this thing would take this object and spit out this object. And it does. So, you know, it would be nice to be able to bring that back to like our UI project. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, have that same kind of, I guess, like a safety net or some kind of like feeling of comfort that, okay, the thing programmatically does what we say it should do. Yeah. And currently, like, we don't have that. So when you push a new feature to, uh, to our website, like it may or may kill it, you know, we didn't yeah, really know until it goes out to production. And especially because like, you know, we're, we're developing on like Chrome primarily. Mm-hmm. And so we don't really know if it's going to kill Firefox or IE or Edge or any of that stuff mm-hmm. until we start getting like bug reports from our other like bug catching software. So yeah. it, it's kind of a, a weird, a weird thing because like, yes, Cypress is awesome, but it also tests the stuff that we're manually testing. But at the mm-hmm. same time, like, wouldn't it be nice to be able to test the entire app and like test these workflows that are super critical and make sure when we add something on one side of the application, it doesn't break the other side of the application. So it's a really weird space to kind of like break into. Um, But yeah, on on the note of uh, trusting your tests, because end end tests are are so incredibly brittle, uh, what can you do to make sure that you're not breaking your tests all the time? So one trick that I've heard is like mm-hmm. using a data attribute, like data Cypress or something, yeah. in order to like target elements with Cypress. Is there other things like that, or or do you use that when you're writing your end-to-end tests? Yeah. So the the thing that you mentioned basically, what you do is that you add separate data attributes in, for your DOM elements that are only targeted by Cypress. So the idea is that if you change the class name or you change the label or well anything really your test should still be passing, no matter which class you have on, on the button. So this is a perfect approach. I do highly recommend that uh, because it will make your tests more stable. And also another idea is that if you can't control it, uh, you probably should try to control it. So what I'm trying to say by that is that in testing, it's important to have a known state of the app at the beginning of the test and try to compare it with your idea of this of the state of the app at the end of the test with the actual result. So uh, Cypress allows you to uh, write fixtures for your API. Uh, so those tests which I mentioned that we are uh, we have on every single pull request, they are not hitting for most cases actual backends. So they are testing whether 
if a backend is going to return this and this, how the website should behave. And this brings the stability up a notch because you don't have, you don't have this external dependency on your backend because you can focus on your app behavior. And also backends should, of course, be tested by, the, by their own unit tests. And like I mentioned, we do have those smoke tests and those smoke tests are actually hitting the backend, which of course may lead some, to some issues from time to time. But nevertheless, if you are able to control your, your backend, if it makes sense in your tests, I do highly recommend you do that because you should focus on testing one thing at a time. You are not going to be able to test everything. And basically your tests shouldn't pass because your tracking script fails to load. So you are the owner of your application. You are the owner of your tests. So you should try to try to do your best in order to handle that. Um, another approach that, uh, I would recommend is to try to break your test. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that the test has, which has never been broken, is not a good test because I've seen it. It's more applicable for unit tests probably, but also for Cypress is that sometimes you write a test, which is going to always pass and you are not sure whether it can be actually broken. For instance, you are checking whether there's no error message if you do this, this, and this. You should try to cause this error message to appear so you know that you are actually testing against that. Because if you are not checking for that, when you have an actual error message of production, you may miss it because you never thought that well, it's going to actually appear. So my approach when it comes to testing, I tend to start with a failing test and then I, uh, either write the code to make the test pass or, or I check, oh, okay, so this test can actually fail. Now I'm going to make, make sure that it passes and I feel so much better about this test moving on and moving forward. Yeah, that, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I know I certainly try to, to catch uh, the error cases as well as like the happy path stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's certainly possible that both pass, like, you know, so um, it makes a lot of sense to try and generate the, the errors that you're kind of trying to protect against as well. Um, you also mentioned uh, when you're using Cypress, like potentially hitting the backend server, mm -hmm. um, particularly in your smoke tests. But if you're running Cypress and you just want to test your app, does Cypress have stuff to mock like endpoints or API calls or anything like that? Or do you have control over like the inputs and outputs with, with Cypress? Yeah, it does. So Cypress has a server command. And basically, once you enable the power of server command, you can do whatever you want. You have complete control over your uh, network requests. So when your app is going to send a GET request to this API, you can ensure that whatever you want gets returned. So you can control the error message. You can control the HTTP status. You can control the response, which allows you to be quite prepared for anything that may happen on the backend side. For me, like I mentioned, this is the part of having the known state of the app is that you cannot operate on, you cannot have predictable tests, which are operating on unpredictable assumptions, such as unpredictable backend, but with fixtures and being able to control the server, you can enable exactly that as in you can control whatever the server is going to return, which allows you to write better tests that you can actually trust. Yeah, that, that's really awesome. Um, 
that really sounds like it gives you a lot of control over uh, your inputs and, and outputs and kind of your, your test cases. Um, so we, we've talked a lot about end-to-end tests and mm-hmm. a lot about unit tests, but what about integration tests? So like, what is an integration test and uh, do you write them and, and kind of what do they cover in your application? Yeah. So like the line between integration tests and unit tests is, is a bit blurry. And uh, basically, I'm sure that if I were to Google it right now, there would be like 10 different definitions. Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so basically, the idea of integration tests is that you test how different modules of your applications behave. So uh, unit tests is more of a testing this exact unit of the code. So you are testing this one component, this one function, this one module. With integration tests, you test how different modules or systems are communicating and uh, cooperating with each other. So one example of very high-level integration test would be this smoke, smoke test that I was mentioning that is actually operating against production backend. So, well, it's testing the integration of your frontend and your backend. But also going a bit, uh, a bit closer to the metal, I suppose, uh, you can also, and you should, uh, write integration tests that are, for instance, if you are using Redux and Redux Saga, you should test if you have a component and this and this action is going to get triggered in your saga, what's going to happen to this component? Because by testing things in isolation, you may end up with a bunch of very well-written and tested components which absolutely refuse to talk to each other. And this is something that you absolutely do not want. Like integration tests, for me, they bring you a bit closer to kind of like the user's perspective because it's about how the different parts of the system interact with one one another. And there's this uh, great tweet by Ken C. Dots. By the way, Ken has a a course on testing JavaScript, which is testingjavascript.com, and I cannot recommend it it enough. So basically what he said is that write tests, not so many, mostly integration. And for me, this is a really good approach to go. Yeah, yeah. So we talked to uh, another um, kind of testing guru on the show, and he brought up the same quote. Yeah. Um, and kind of mentioned, you know, Ken C. Dodds in a, in high praise, and and I tend to to want to agree, um, because you know, there's this hilarious image of a, it's a testing joke, but there's a GIF where somebody's opening an umbrella, and so like they press a button, the umbrella opens and the shaft extends but it separates. And so they go like all, <laughs> all unit tests pass. And so yeah. that that's kind of like the, the crux of it is like all the little pieces can pass, but if they don't work together, then it's not a functioning program. And so like, yeah, that's exactly. kind of where the integration tests come in. But yeah, uh, yeah kind of, I, I particularly wanted to mm-hmm. no, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was trying to say there's basically like a team of engineers who are refusing to talk to each other. This is exactly the same deal. Like you have 10 talented people sitting in the same room, they don't talk to each other, you are not going to get anything done. Right, yeah. And so the weird thing about whenever we talk about integration tests is kind of what you mentioned, like you may think of it as like a front-end versus back-end thing, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of dependent on where you draw the lines. So it could be, you know, my application from Redux, it could be like component to component. It's kind of a weird gray area on how you should write those integration tests. 
Yeah, definitely. There's there's a there's a very blurry line. So like I said, I'm not trying to draw any lines because for me personally, I'm sure like I said, I would be able to Google the term. I would find ten different definitions. For me, what's important is this idea of testing things not only in isolation but also checking how they communicate and cooperate with one another. Right. Yeah. Um. So. Now that we've kind of outlined that <laughs> testing is kind of difficult, um, it is. what uh, what advice would you have for people that have done like no testing or are just getting their feet wet with it? Um, there's a lot of developers out there, particularly like our audience, uh, a bunch of early mm -hmm. career people typically, that they hear, oh, you know, write a lot of tests, write integration tests, not too many or, or whatever, but yeah. they don't really know how to do it and they don't know like what tools to use and, and kind of like uh, how to get started. So how to work their way into some of these harder problems that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have for those kind of folks? Uh, so there's a couple of things here. I, I would say that first up, a good way, a good approach, like in my opinion, is to start treating testing and development as two separate things. Because I, I know that testing can be daunting and it definitely was for me when I, when I started, but there's a price to pay definitely because you have to write those tests, you have to maintain them, but also what you get as a result is greater confidence in your software. And for me, this is crucial, not only for mental health, but also like we established the speed of delivery and making sure that no one is going to call you at 2 a.m. Uh, so what, what I would suggest is to get started writing tests uh, so like writing detailed integration tests is not going to be easy from the start but if you for instance if you do react uh, react testing library has an excellent documentation so what i would suggest it is that if you have a react app for instance just try try to start with some of your simplest components. So for instance, like quite literally a button, a label, or something which is not overly complicated. It doesn't, have, it doesn't have a lot of state. It's not talking to many different components and start testing that. Learn the API, learn, learn the practices, uh, try to make your tests fail because you have to ensure that your test can actually fail and kind of build from that. Uh, also, like we established, do not try to aim for testing every single line of your code because one, it's not going to work, two, you are going to burn out because of that. Also, for those who are starting in more of a, like a corporate environment or like in startups, well, corporate and startups, which are completely different, but uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I worked for kind of both and I felt sometimes there's this pressure of uh, no, no, just push, just push it to prod, just push it. We're going to test, write the test later. Oh yeah, I've definitely yeah. been helping it. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what I would suggest is that don't, as in try <laughs> to, <laughs> because it, it may sound, oh, okay, screw it. I'm going to write the test next sprint. No, you won't do that. Uh, because from my experience, Tickets that were like on the very bottom of the backlog were always, oh, write unit test for this and this component. Like for me, the part of delivering software is ensuring that it was tested. Like it's not something that you do, I don't know, as a part from programming. No, it's a, a part of programming because you have to 
ensure that whatever you are delivering actually works. Like you, I don't know, if someone is going to repair your fridge, at the end of the repair process, you probably want to ensure that it actually freaking works before you pay them. And for me, this is the kind of approach that we should also take as, as developers, that it's not only about other people telling us that our stuff is broken, but also about us being able to test, oh, you know, this, this works. This works because here are the tests. So basically, with my workflow with backend uh, work that I'm doing, I'm doing a lot of test-driven development where I write the tests and then I code against the tests to make sure that they all pass. And then mm -hmm. if I do that, like I know that things are going to work and I save myself a lot of time um, manually testing those things. So when I do UI development, I'll write the feature or whatever and then fire up the dev environment in the browser and use dev tools and stuff and try and break it. And oftentimes that takes me a lot more time than, you know, if I was just doing the tests themselves and kind of running yeah. those. So do you kind of like, do you do test-driven development at work or do you agree with it? Or do you just kind of like try and do that when you can? Um, what's your opinion on TDD, I guess? So I'm trying, I'm trying my best to, to like write tests first, but uh, to be fair, it's not, it's not easy. Like for, for me, for me, there's this whole, whole idea of um, kind of when it comes to front-end, I sometimes tend to discover the implementation. So it's, it's definitely not easy to start with tests and then write the implementation against that because for, for me, you're trying to solve a problem uh, in terms of the UI and you are not entirely sure what the UI is going to look like when you want to solve this problem. So you end up kind of writing the tests afterwards, after the implementation. But you also touched on a very important subject of uh, saving time. Because for me, at some point, you are not really able to um, click through the entire application. Like, it's not going to happen. Uh, you will miss some stuff. You won't be able to test everything manually. So in essence, by not spending a day writing unit tests, you are probably going to waste like two weeks in total, trying to fix bugs that you're going to encounter because you haven't written any unit tests. Right. Yeah. And that's something that's, it becomes hard to explain to, uh, you know, your, your team leaders or your, um, your CEO or whatever that's pushing you to just build stuff. I'll just ship it to production, just build it. And there's always that pressure to like deliver, but then you, you're kind of sweeping stuff under the rug at the same time by not you know, double checking your code. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that uh, you have to figure out who owns the code. Like, of course, big folks will try to push you in order to develop stuff faster. But on the other hand, it's kind of your responsibility to deliver good quality code. So I think it's kind of important at some point to start pushing back and saying, no, no, no. We are not going to push this to production because then you will probably invite us to another meeting because users are complaining because, well, the stuff doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and then Eddie, did you, uh, you had a question about React VR, right? Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to know if you can talk a little bit about your, you said you had a course on it? Yeah, that's correct. It's React 360 or VR? So the thing is that it was React VR for, for a bit of a year. And so what they did last year and is basically reverted the whole thing. 
So right now okay. it's called React 360 to kind of emphasize that they are talking. About, it's more about 360 experiences in the web is that you can look whatever you want. You have this free 360 degree of view and of uh, as in you can put stuff wherever you want. It's also it's fully interactive. And for me, the good part about React 360 is that you can have the same experience on desktop, mobile, and VR headset which is the same, similar, but also highly different because on a headset, you can you know, move your head to see different uh, parts of the content. On desktop, you have to use your mouse or, or a touchpad. And on mobile, you can just move your phone around in order to see parts of your app. That's kind of cool. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. Um, is that, uh, I guess, is that an open source project that anybody can try out? Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's actually maintained by the Oculus team, and as you probably know, Oculus was I know two years ago they've been bought by uh, by Facebook, so the Facebook now. And so, like I said, I do have a course about it on Ahead.io, and I do strongly recommend it because well, it's really cool, it's amazing because well, it, it was done by me. <laughs> and for me, it's really interesting and refreshing to to check it out uh, because if you are like a web developer, you probably did everything in 2D. Everything was, well, flat. And for me, it's important and intriguing. Just try something new, see whether you're going to like it or not. It's, um, it's something that not everyone is going to be really interested, interested in because there's this definitely there's this shift of uh, approach when it comes to styling, for instance, because styling in 2D is difficult. Styling in 3D it's a bit more difficult, I would say. But for me, the kind of this reward of being able to experiment with, with some other stuff, which for me is basically is, is interesting. It's interesting to see what can be done in the browser because I haven't mentioned that, but React VR runs inside of a browser. It's just a website, but it's, it's just V. I mean, it's just, it's not just, but it's a website which is, is runs in VR. Like how cool is that? Yeah, definitely. Do you have um like any websites that are uh deployed that we could check out that are running React VR? So I do have this website that was uh, that I finished at the end of my course. So basically, the idea of the course was uh, people were able to build this thing from scratch. Uh, let me see if I still have it. Okay. And this is uh, what someone would be building in the course. Oh wow. So uh. It's like a a VR looking three D space that you can navigate around, and it has like some flags around the. Yeah, is that uh, you're able to basically the this app is called Travel VR, so it allows you to travel to different places that I've been. So, for instance, if you look around using your mouse and you click on the flag of Ukraine, you're going to travel to Chernobyl. I'm not sure if you watched the HBO show about Chernobyl, but I was actually in Chernobyl mm -hmm. uh, two years ago. So I took this photo and I've decided to put this inside of the app. Uh, so one of the coolest things about VR is that you can transport users to different dimensions that they don't have to go anywhere. And this is really cool when you are wearing a, an actual headset uh, because then you can see this place that you are probably not going to visit at all and you can kind of sort of go there without leaving your apartment and without leaving the browser. You've been to wow. space? 
<laughs> yeah, there's a there's a NASA flag you can click and it takes you to a galaxy. <laughs> this is cool. So, Tomash the app the astronaut. Yeah. This is pretty cool. So we'll we'll include this link on the show notes so so people can check it out. Uh before we um before we jump into to Nerdman and all that stuff, uh there's a seems like a running joke on on Twitter about jQuery. So, uh, are you a big jQuery fan or where, where does that come from? Uh, so like I said, it is a running joke. Uh, so, so the, the story is that in 2017, I was uh, at the speaker's dinner before my very first conference. I was stressed at he- as hell. I had no idea what the hell I was doing there. So <laughs> with other speakers, we have this idea that we're going to mention jQuery at every single talk. And it actually worked out. It, w- it was really fun. And I kind of kept on roll with that. Uh, I started, you know, tweeting a bit about jQuery. People seemed to like it. And for me, this idea of, you know, for me to tweet something silly, people seem to like it. And just making the, their day a tiny bit better. Of course, not trying to, you know, do any harm for the jQuery team because this is my actual honest opinion. I do think that uh, jQuery is one of the, thing, the best things that ever happened to the web because it opened the doors to do like, fully interactive websites to all kinds of folks when it was still rele- relevant, uh, like in 2011 or 2012, because you didn't have to care about cross-browser support and all of that. Uh, but apart from the, you know, the running joke and all of that, like for me, there's also this there's this idea that I kind of miss the times where in order to get started, you had to learn HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and jQuery. Right now, and don't get me wrong, I'm more than happy with the tools and solutions that we have today because like like we established, I'm a huge fan of React. We talked about Cypress and Jest and all of that. But on the other hand, it gets really daunting for people who are just starting in web development because there's just so much to learn and how, do, how the hell you are supposed to figure out what, what to learn next. But those times, it was a bit easier and I do kind of miss those. I do kind of miss those sometimes. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. Um, web development kind of when you tell people that you're a front-end developer, they're like, oh, yeah, whatever, you do CSS or something. And really, like, front-end development has become as complex, if not more complex, than back-end development nowadays because of build tools and Webpack, uh, Babel, uh, on top of having to know, like, CSS and HTML, plus, like, all these intricacies with JavaScript, component-based architecture, React. Like, there's new frameworks every day. It's just this huge ball of stress for a lot of people because things are changing so quickly and there's so much stuff to keep track of and stay up to date on. So, um, yeah, definitely jQuery was like kind of like maybe worse times, but simpler times. (laughs) Yeah. I kind of know what you mean. Like you have this nostalgia and I wouldn't want to go back to write jQuery full time, but on the other hand, I wouldn't want to start web development in 2019 because it would be probably quite difficult for me to kind of understand what to focus on. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, a can of worms for sure. So um, at the end of the show, we do a little segment called nerd minute, but uh, before we jump into that, do you have anything that you want to share with the audience? Like uh, 
uh, your Twitter or website or anything like that? Uh, I don't have a website. So what I would like to share is basically my Twitter account and also my Dev2 account. You know, the, the, the practical, practical Dev website where I post some, uh, some articles. So I tweeted this today that my goal is to write uh, 10 more articles to the end of the year. So I'm trying to hold tweet as in to hold myself accountable by posting that on Twitter. So someone will tell me in January that I didn't. So if I could just <laughs> get a link to that on, you know, somewhere in the post podcast website, uh, that would be great. I'm just going to post paste it over. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely, uh, we will link that as well as your Twitter account in the show notes. So, um, like I said, at the end of every show, we do a little segment called nerd minute where we just talk about like video games or comics or, uh, could be books or whatever you're into. Um, so Tomas, you're the, uh, you're the guest. Um, what are you into lately? Okay. I, I was thinking about it because, well, I'm a huge nerd, like before being nerd was cool. And <laughs> I've been watching quite a lot of Super Mario speedruns uh, videos lately. Oh, really? Like for okay. me, there's a whole world out there. Uh, for instance, I'm not sure if you are aware, but Super Mario Bros. is a game that you can finish under five minutes. And the amount of work that goes into finishing this game in under five minutes, because it's not only about like the manual skill, but also there's a huge amount of math involved a uh, huge amount kind of like of research there i've been there were like hundreds of people involved in finding the perfect route to get this game as to finish this game as soon as possible so there's a whole world out there and i kind of you know starting watching those there's this uh, amazing youtube channel which is called summoning salt i'm going to paste the link to it in, in just a second because for me i was completely blown away uh, because it's not only about Super Mario, but also other about other speedruns. And I had absolutely no idea that you could finish those games in such a quick amount of time. Like you get, for instance, you take uh, uh, Donkey Kong, which apparently was a game that was supposed to last, I know, like 40 hours, and people have finished it in like, I don't know, 40 minutes. So for me, this this approach of being able to get a piece of software and break it so hard like i think it kind of relates to the theme of this episode which was about testing like even those uh, those games even though those games were tested i'm sure they were not put to test so badly from the developer's perspective as it as they were from the um speedrunner's perspective so these are people playing the game and not just like someone programming like uh, it's actually people. So for me, okay, cool. because there's also this genre of people automating the game, yeah, for me, it's not so interesting. For me, this uh, this idea of human being being able to play this game on such an amazing level, for me, this is the most interesting part. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a whole community of speedrunners that um, some of them do tool-assisted where they're running uh, like emulators and stuff. And they have like... Um, basically automated scripts and stuff that will help them reset the game very quickly and, and some kind of things like that. But then there's also people that are just like straight up playing these games and speed running them on the actual hardware. Um, so there's a, actually there's a charity event every year that I see on Kotaku. That's like good day, good games done quick or something like that, where yeah, it's a community of speed. Runner. Yeah. They do it yeah, for charity. Speed, 
Exactly. So yeah. that they, they get together and try and beat these games um, and raise money. And uh, yeah, the, the community, like you mentioned, is kind of like you wouldn't think that people get that into it, but they're they're actually digging into the implementation of these games and looking at like, you know, different memory addresses and stuff in the cartridge and trying to like uh, find exploits where you're like hitting a brick a certain amount of times and that causes like a rollover or something on the bit that then makes that block be considered something else and, and weird stuff like that. Yeah. That uh, that breaks the game and lets you like skip large sections of it in order to drop your time. So um, yeah, it's it's really interesting to kind of like imagine people spending hours upon hours of research trying to find those those little uh, exploits like that. To add, kind of add, add up to that, for me personally, I'm complaining about Webpack, and there are people out there who ever engineered like Super Mario 64 game from scratch with no documentation whatsoever, with only the cartridge. And so, like I said, the amount of work those people put into researching those games is absolutely incredible. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, man, I don't know. Webpack's just not fun, though. Like, when you're doing it with Mario, it's kind of like yeah. you can see people having fun with it. But, but Webpack is yeah, just Yeah, I think kind that of, no one is actually enjoying like, configuring Webpack. Yeah, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think anybody enjoys Webpack. Um, I don't, I don't want to beat on Webpack, but, like, Writing a webcat pack config is like the least fun I think you could have with development. Like the more they can abstract that stuff away and automate it, like the better, in my opinion. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like you end up writing a huge configuration file. I mean, sure, at the end of the day, it allows you to build products and you know experiences for your users. But from your perspective as a developer, it's, it's just not fun. To be fair. Yeah. Uh, so Eddie, do you ha- do you have anything for Nerd Minute? <laughs> um, <laughs> I I didn't have much. I just saw that um, Outer Worlds came out recently, and it's something I'm kind of interested in and I kind of want to play. What is that? It's um, it's an RPG uh made by I think it's Obsidian. Um, they did like I want to say they did um, Fallout New Vegas. If you like those okay. kinds of games. But this one is uh, a lot shorter, um, which I like because I, I can't play like 100-hour RPGs. Um, but yeah, it seems really cool. It's very sci-fi. Um, someone compared it to uh, Mass Effect as far as like making decisions and stuff like that. And cool. Mass Effect is one of my favorite games. So uh, yeah, I'm probably going to check that out. It's on Game Pass if you have an Xbox or the Xbox Game Pass thing. Uh, which is pretty okay. cool. Yeah, so I, I don't, since I already subscribed to it, I can play it without having to buy it. Nice. Uh, so yeah, I might check that out in a couple of weeks when I have more free time. Cool. Uh, the only thing that I've got is uh, I watched um, Doom Patrol. Yeah, which, that seems uh, cool. Yeah, yeah, it's a a DC Comics um, property. Uh, so like this weird, obscure sixties comic book and they had a uh, Grant Morrison. Who's like a very, uh, he's a very interesting writer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he jumped on it, um, in, I want to say like either early two thousands or in the nineties. And he had his own run of doom patrol where, um, 
he kind of reinvented the characters and kind of like rolled in the story to the previous uh, run of books. Okay. And um, I'm pretty sure that is the version that they made the TV show out of. Okay. But uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very off base kind of superhero tale. Like all the people on the team have like weird powers that aren't really superhero powers. So like one guy's thing is he was killed in a car accident and all they could save was his brain. So they put his brain in like a robot body, but it's like a really crappy robot body. (laughs) (laughs) So he can't be hurt. But then at the same time, like he can't like feel anything and he's, uh, has like poor articulation and stuff like that. So, um, another character, like she was a movie actress and her ability is she can turn into like a blob. (laughs) So but she has trouble controlling it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she just like randomly melts whenever she gets stressed out. Uh, so a lot of weird powers like that. Um, but they also rolled uh, Cyborg into the TV show. Okay. So he's obviously like a, a mainstream hero. And uh, he's part of the series, but it's like a younger Cyborg. Um, like so Titans Cyborg? Yeah, yeah. Like teenage Cyborg before he becomes a member of the Justice League. So um, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and then they also got Timothy Dalton to play like the doctor that has like assembled all these people. So he's uh, obviously like a really famous and, and talented actor. So um, there's like a, a lot of weird off base jokes in the, the show, like a lot of fart gags and, and stuff like that, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of uh, kind of bizarre, but. Seeing that, like, with Timothy, Timothy Dalton, who's, like, this British actor who's very proper, played James Bond, all that stuff, uh, is, is very funny to That's me. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, it's been really good so far, so I'd, I'd recommend it. Um, and then they got, uh, the villain is played by the pilot from Firefly. Okay. And, uh, forgive me for not remembering his name, but uh, he, he's a pretty good actor, and he does a really, really good... Uh, like comically evil, like dastardly Dan kind of villain. Okay. So, you mean yeah, Nathan Fillion? Uh, not no, he's the main character from Firefly. Oh, oh, okay. I'm talking about his pilot, like the guy oh, that actually steers okay, the ship. Okay. Um, so he he does a really good job. I haven't actually seen Firefly. Oh man, you got to check it out. Uh, one of the best science fiction TV shows from the early 2000s or late 90s, one of the two. Have you watched any of the other DC shows? Uh, I have not. Okay. Um, I've only seen like the stuff on the CW, uh, mainly like the first couple seasons of Flash. But uh, have you seen the Joker? I did see Joker. Yeah. Oh, did you? Did you like it? Uh, I liked it. It was good. Um, did have you seen it, Tomash? Uh, um, yeah, I have. I have. I've been to. I've been to the cinema like two days ago. Really liked it. Really intriguing film. I'm going to probably check it out again because I have thing. I have a thing that it's one of the movies that you kind of appreciate at the second going through because you kind of more appreciate the music and the uh, the, the shots and the atmosphere of the of the movie. But you know, for me, it was excellent. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that uh, is kind of challenging the viewer uh, in that movie. Yeah. So like, there's. Um, kind of a lot of twists on reality because you're watching the movie from the Joker's perspective and like his story, his storytelling and he's an unreliable narrator. So 
you don't really know what's real and what's in his head uh, on your first pass through. And so it kind of rewards uh, second viewing um, because you kind of know, like, going into it, okay, like, I need to watch out for what's not actually happening, which is a really interesting... Used to rooting for the main character, but here Joker is such a terrible human being that you are... Yes. <laughs> you know, watching a movie from their perspective, but you are not actually rooting for the character. You kind of want them to fail, but you know it's not going to happen, so you kind of are being taken on the ride. You are not watching a movie. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like he's he's something that you can like you sympathize with some of his plights, but then the way that he handles those things is always terrible. <laughs> so it's <laughs> it's it's really hard to cope with those feelings of okay, I I understand why he feels this way, but I don't agree with what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. I didn't like it, but I have to watch it again. Yeah, Eddie is uh he's one of the few people that has had bad things to say about the movie, so. But he did say that he would watch it again. Yeah, so. yeah. I know I missed things. I was a little distracted with <laughs> Um, but yeah. Cool. Well, uh that that's all I've got for uh nerd stuff. Um Thank you so so much for coming on the show, Tomash. Uh, we we had yeah, a blast, haven't you? Uh thanks for having me. I mean, it was my very second podcast and I had a blast. Thanks for listening to Tech Junior. Head on over to our site at techjar.dev for show notes and past episodes. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter and get an email from us once a week with the latest episode and some other stuff. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so by becoming a Patreon subscriber. Uh, special thanks to all our current patrons. And we also have a Teespring store where you can get some cool Tech Jar swag like t-shirts and stickers designed by Eddie and I. You can find links to both the Swag Store and the Patreon on our website under Support. Follow us at TechJR Podcast, follow me at LeeWark Jr., and Eddie at ED0TER0. Uh, this week, somebody asked us a design question, and uh, we were happy to throw that one directly to Eddie. So please <laughs> tag us with more uh, questions. We, we love hearing that stuff. Join us next week, where we're talking to Chris Arter. Chris is a local Orlando developer uh, with an interesting story. He did a lot of couch surfing, and I think he lived in a garage for um, an, an undue amount of time while stealing internet to learn how to code. So a pretty awesome story. Um, Chris is doing a lot better now, um, but just a really interesting conversation. So check that out next Wednesday. All right. Uh, I think that's all we've got this week. Um, next week is flashback conference. So, uh, by the time the next episode goes out, that will have happened. So check that out at cfe.dev that's certified fresh events. Uh, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be on a panel talking about modern web development and Eddie's going to be there too. So come on out and say hi, and we'll give you some tech junior stickers for free just for coming out. So, uh, please check that out. All right. That's enough shilling for one day. We will see you next week later.